up next on Inside the SCCA, catching up with a three-time national champ in a class he says nobody cares about. Welcome to Inside the SCCA. I'm Brian Belansky, and uh, we are here today talking about some good stuff here. We've got three-time national champ Danny Stain with us. Danny, welcome. Well, thank you, Brian. Thanks for having me. Um, that's not how I plan to open the show, but uh, that is how you described STU. STU or STL? STL. STL, Super right, Touring right. Lodge, correct, yeah. Um, Danny told me I'm a, I'm a national champ in a class that nobody cares about. Everyone cares about Spec well, Miata, but... Uh, well. So I need to I need to clarify that there's a lot of wonderful people in Super yes. Touring Light that put their life into that, put all their work into that class, right. um, and great deal of respect. Um, but the thing that everybody really wants to win is the two big the two big classes in sure. in in SCCAR Spec Racer Ford right. and Spec Miata. Right. And I've come close a few times, but I haven't quite climbed on that top step and I think I might be 80 or 90 years old walking around with a walk and I'll still be showing up for the runoffs <laughs> with this delusional belief that maybe I can pull it off one day. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So we're going to get into all of that in a second. I start every show the exact same way, asking a simple question. Um, and I'm, I'm looking forward to your answer to this question. And that is, how did you get mixed up in this crazy sport that we all love? It's a long circuitous thing. So if you want a short answer, no, we'll have the to long abbreviate answer. it, but the long answer. So um, growing up in South Africa, I had this uh, sort of adventurous streak and I wanted to race motorbikes. My parents were dead sent against motorbikes. They looked at all the safety factors. And so at the age of 18 or 19, after having finished military service, I went to university uh, away from home. And the day I got there, I bought a motorbike. And within a week, I was racing. And in an eight-year period, I don't think I went more than four months without a trip to hospital. And I ended up breaking just about every bone in my body, had multiple surgeries. And finally, in 1987, I ended up in a 10-day coma. And it was at that time that my parents got to find out about my motor racing. I'd won a few um, state championships. Um, but there wasn't TV back there, and um, they weren't watching that kind of stuff anyway. So I was under the radar, and I had my racing career. But the, uh, the coma set, I did go back racing after that. But for the first time, I was aware of my own mortality. I was always the guy who said, yeah, hold my drink, watch this, <laughs> going for the double or the triple that nobody was going for. And I always had bigger gonads than brain cells. So it was a lethal combination. And um, then stopped racing in 1987, switched to windsurfing, won a few national titles there. Then came to the States in 1993 lived in a van for a long time, had no money whatsoever, started a few businesses, some that were successful, some that weren't, and finally started to make some money. And at the age of 50, I bought myself a Mercedes-Benz, um, was an E55, a supercharged E55. And I thought that I arrived in life. Uh. And, one of, and one of the things that you get with this is one of those you know, driver appreciation days, and it was down at Homestead. And so, of course, I went and attended, and I was one of maybe 60 people there that day. And I said, fastest time of the day in, um, in autocross. 
and people noticed. And just like every coach that works that circuit, they're hoping to put their hooks into what they believe is going to be the whale that takes them to the pro races. And they told me that I need to go racing. And so I said, well, of course I've got to go racing. I'll call my wife. And I signed up for the Panos class. And it was really the last year of Panos. Mm -hmm. So in 2007, I ran with Panos, um, actually ran at the, um, the uh, warm-up race for the Petit Le Mans that year, but I needed some seat time at Road Atlanta. And the only car that I could rent for seat time was this damn horrible orange <laughs> with green frame spec Miata rented by this guy called Tom Fowler. It was a 1.6 NA, and I was just miserable from the moment I got in it and sat in it. It was small, and don't you know, I'm a V8 guy. I need 500 horsepower, and I, I did not want to be there at all. And I remember going down the straight, going down into turn one, and we were five wide. And I knew it was going to end badly, so I backed out of it. I lifted. I was the only one that did. And they just I went from about 10th to about 25th by the time we got to turn three. The elbows were out, and I was going, man, this is exciting. And honestly, that was the first race I did that I went to was SCCA. It was in a spec Miata. And I just fell in love with it instantly. It, it felt like it was racing motocross with a cage. And um, I fell in love with it. And I've been racing now for, this is my 16th year, racing spec Miatas. And that same, that same grin that I had on that day is there every time I get in this car. And um, I, I cannot make this up. I cannot wait to get in the car again in the stupid little, you know, 2,400-pound car with almost 125 horsepower. And for some reason, that thing just lights my fire. I ended up getting into Super Touring Light just for some additional track time. Right. And so th there wasn't really an intention to become a national champion, anything that just evolved over time. But it was purely just to double dip while I was at the track because as you know, the expensive thing is not so much the racing, but it's the being the time away from work. Right. And so if you're at the track, you might as well get as much track time as you can. So sure. there's my long story. Started in, in a car for the first time in 19, uh, sorry, in, in 2006 or in 2007 run, running with Panos. And I think in September of 2007, I ran my first SCCA race in Spec Miata. And then 2008, I had Tom Fowler at OPM build me my first uh, 1999 and he's been building my cars and him and Mike Rossini have been building my cars and engines ever since. Yeah. Uh, it's funny how the, the world circles around uh, in this, in this sport. Cause uh, when I lived in Atlanta and worked at CNN and did got really got to the point in my life where I could afford to try to do a little bit of racing. Uh, yeah. I'm a Honda guy. And at that time yeah. he was doing a lot with Hondas and uh, Tom Fowler. And uh, he helped me with a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I had OPM on the side of my car. And um, uh, and, it, and he's still to this day, you know, a force to be reckoned with in, in SCCA club racing. He's, he's possibly one of the nicest guys yeah. at a track that you will ever meet. Um, the people under his tent, you know, it, we're there with a laugh and a smile. And he tells the greatest stories. But, you know, he's this absolutely genuine person and he's built this team around him that everybody wants to be a part of. And he's exceptionally good with what he does. So, yeah, it's I've been very privileged. I could have started with somebody else and I might have tapped out after a season or even after the first race. But 
I was very fortunate um, to meet, to do it with Tom. I'm also a very loyal person. When I find somebody that treats me well, I find it very difficult to go anywhere, even through bad times. I've had some tough times with Tom, very few. I've had tough times with my engine builder, Mike Rossini. But when people, I know they're doing their best, that's all I need. It doesn't matter. And I stick with them, you know, through thick and thin. And here we are. I've been, as I say, 16 years with Tom and 15 years with Mike Rossini. So that gives you an idea of, you know, the, the commitment to these people that have been part of my life. Right. So I, I'm not a huge research guy when it comes to my guests. I'll be honest with you. Um, I kind of like going into our shows not knowing a lot about who I've got coming on. Um, I invited you because I just love your enthusiasm for what we do. Um, you were um, perfect point at the at the sprints this year. You and Charles McTutis had uh, a great little teammate moment on Saturday, and you ended up taking the win. And the interview that you gave to Jim, I think it was Jim Llewellyn afterwards. Correct, yes. Um, I, I was just like, if, if I wanted to have a teammate and a man crush, I was all, I was all in, you were excited. You brought him in. You were, you were, you were thankful for the guy who was helping you and, and you guys couldn't be more polar opposites. You know, we are are the quintessential odd couple, (laughs) you know, I think Chuck is 24 or 25. I'm 65. You know, he's a hippie. I'm very much together by the book. You know, <laughs> honestly, it, it's a fantastic dynamic, Yeah, but it works and it really works well. Yeah. So I saw that interview and and we had talked beforehand trying yeah, to get yeah. you on as well. But I mean, that kind of sealed the deal. I, I never had a question that I wanted it, but but I'm like, oh, we got to we got to make this thing happen and make it happen. Well, soon. Thank you. So um, uh, but this time I did kind of stumble a little bit upon uh, some stuff and um, um, you, you have a. Um, a very a varying career that you've been involved with, um, and uh, I said to my wife, I said, you know, I- I'm interviewing a guy tonight that shoots Playboy models, and, and she looked at me. I'm like, don't you do? Did you switch your podcast back to photography? I'm like, no, no, no. This guy's a racer, and uh, a racer through and through. How, how? I mean, you're a professional photographer. Um, I looked at your your stuff, and you do a lot of commercial did or do a lot of commercial work so it wasn't just shooting pretty ladies um but um how did you stumble upon that because as a photographer myself i got to know the secret (laughs) once again these are always long stories and really interesting so i I grew up in south africa in a very conservative environment right uh, during the apartheid regime um we had complete censorship of radio, of television, of anything. There were no nudie magazines, no men's magazines, nothing like that. And my father, while he was alive, was a very conservative man, incredibly conservative, but he was open-minded. And he was curious, and he taught me to always be curious. And he traveled a lot on business. And so as a young 12 or 13-year-old, I would receive these Manila envelopes addressed to, to James Daniel Stain Esquire, personal, private, and confidential. <laughs> and they were and they were mailed from somewhere in Europe and they were Playboy magazines. And I fell in love and I read I read absolutely everything. In fact, I fell in love with Fort Lauderdale 
through Spring Break, the stories about Spring Break that were published in, in, in Playboy way back when, and that was part of how I ended up here. But yes, I was fascinated by the beautiful girls, but I also enjoyed the stories. And I know that's such a cliche, right. but I started to follow authors and I started to follow uh, writers and bands. And of course, you know, over the 10 or 20 years of this thing, that this was happening, um, there was a huge change in America. I was still living in South Africa. And, but I, I learned about America through Playboy. Sure. Um, and it was fascinating. But I figured out somebody's getting paid <laughs> to do this. Yeah. H- how awesome would that be? And how do I get that job? So at the age of 13, I said to my dad, I've got to get a, a single lens reflex, an SLR. And back then I wanted a, a Pentax Asahi Spotmatic F screw-on lens. And it was back then, it was a stupid amount of dollars. It would be the equivalent of about $100 today or whatever it was. And my dad would travel to Japan. He'd buy it for me. And he said, and my dad would never give me anything. I always had to earn it. I could do it with chores. I could do it and say, dad, I'm going to start shooting kids at school, playing sports. And I'm going to, they're going to try, I'm going to charge them for it. And then I'll pay you off. And if you would give me three or four months and I'll pay it off. And I started doing that, but I also started photographing young women and obviously not nudes you know, at the school. Right. And I started to understand people who like to be photographed. I started to understand where the market was. I learned very quickly with sports stars who would never buy anything from me, from wannabes that would buy every single shot I ever took. And I started to develop this business brain at the age of 12 or 13, photographing, and very quickly started to realize, okay, maybe I could make some money doing this. And I started shooting naked girls as a young kid. And... Because I wasn't 18, I couldn't <laughs> use my real name. Sure. So I used Stanley Dane instead of Danny Stane. I like it. And, and so I have all of these checks made out by magazines <laughs> to Stanley Dane that never got deposited. Wow. And because nobody existed, there wasn't sure. such a person. And the day I turned 18, I switched to Danny Stane and uh, went and introduced myself to all the editors and said, the guy that I am the guy that was Stanley Dane. And by the way, let's continue this relationship. And so I've been shooting, I've been shooting naked girls since the age of, not naked girls, I've been shooting girls, naked girls since the age of 15 or 16. So, you know, 50 something years. Yeah. Uh, you know, people don't realize, and I know it's, you said it's cliche. You like, you like the stories. Um, a lot of people don't realize that in journalism school, we get taught a lot of journalism schools teach the playboy interview, uh, which is a style of, of reporting interview, which I adore. Um, and it's basically just, it's, verbatim word for word i ask the question and i put the answers in um and um it's it's really without editing it becomes uh, a, a pretty nice uh historical document you know and they did one with castro and and they did it they did one with noriega at one point in time and then they did it with some other people who were less infamous <laughs> um but that style of reporting um uh is is really a a, a really interesting way to do things so um, and, I, and I think, and I think, in a way, uh, Hugh Hefner, whether you like him or hate him, or ha- liked him or hated him, um, he was way ahead of his time, and he he really had an understanding of the movement of the day, and and as it changed, and he was always able to to create content, whether it was art, um, you know, finding the right artists, the right the right contributors the right photographers, the right style. Um, that it was, I always found that fascinating. And I, I still have a few hundred Playboys, 
that date back to those early days because I think they are just masterpieces. Um, and I actually fell in love with writing through Playboy yeah. journalism. And I started writing to sell my travel stories and to sell my sports stories. And I started writing for Sports Illustrated and magazines in South Africa based on my reading from Playboy. So long, long interesting journey. But uh, yeah, it was a very influential magazine in my life. So when you were in South Africa, F1 came to South Africa at that point in time. Um, and it, uh, Jody Schechter is South African, right? Correct. Um, did that ever interest you at that point in time? Was, was there an interest in, in, in four-wheel motorsports for you because of any of that? I lived in a town called Bryanston, a rural community called Bryanston, and Kyalami was about 15 to 20 miles away. And every single weekend, I'd be on a bicycle, on a 10-speed bicycle, from the age of about 11 all the way through high school. And I'd cycle there. It would take me a few hours to get there. I'd spend the day there. Sometimes I'd sleep the night with a tent, and I'd cycle back. And I watched all of those early races um, back in the Ronnie Peterson era yep. and all of those, those legends that were there. Um, yeah, I was absolutely fascinated. Obviously, racing was expensive. My parents were dead set against it. Uh, my dad... You know, it was all about job and security and pension and, you know, medicals, you know, and all of those are the sort of things that my, my dad grew up during the Great Depression. He was an orphan. So he had this very, um, I suppose, slightly insecure concern that you've got to make sure that you're taken care of and you do the, the right thing financially, playing on the side with whatever playing was, mm. motor racing stuff, that was sort of frivolous and it, was, it wasn't the, the stuff that had to be done. And that's how I was raised. And so I was always rebelling against my father. And so when I went and raced motorcycles, that was, I knew he didn't approve. And in fact, when I ended up in the coma, my dad did not come to see me. And we actually didn't speak to each other for many years after that. My mom came down and, you know, found out I was racing. And my dad felt that I'd betrayed him and, um, you know, I'd given him my word that I would be a sensible young man. And, you know, so I'm, I'm so envious of young kids today whose parents stand behind them mm. at the racetrack, sponsor them, cheer them on, put up with their shenanigans. And I was just going, I wonder what would have happened if I had that kind of parent at that age. Who knows? I would have, I would have more than likely rebelled at that and gone and done something different, yeah. So when you started, was there a break from when you were in that coma <clears throat> to when you started racing again, or did you get right back into it? Yeah, so I, had the, I was in a coma in 1987, and I did, didn't do anything until I was so I was 27 years old, 28 years old, and I did nothing until I was 50. Okay, so, so that was a long time away. I did lots of sports. Sure, I did lots of competitive sports. I've been a an incredibly obsessive com competitive athlete my whole life. Um, I have national titles in multiple sports. I just can't help myself. I'm not happy unless I'm competing. I like the elbows out, and I like the dangerous aspects. I used to play team sports in primary school and high school, but I didn't feel the people in my team were training quite as hard as I was. And so I started gravitating towards individual sports where I was in control of the outcome more than my team was here. So did, um, did dad, was dad around when you started racing on four wheels? To, uh, to, to yes, he was. Did yes, he? he was. He never knew about it. I kept it away from him. Uh. I knew it was never going to settle. Um, even my mother, um, just, it was, it, you're not going to change somebody in their right. 70s, 80s, and 90s. Um, it's not worth it. Not worth the battle. 
just keep the conversation at the dinner table nice and uplifting. <laughs> uh, so um, we're watching uh, while, um, while while you and I are talking some of the video you sent me. Um, <laughs> and um, we've got a couple of things here that I'm just playing kind of in the background while we're chatting. Okay. So, um, uh, but this is uh, the first video is it's an in-car uh, video front and back. And uh, this is you in your, in your, in your Miata. So, and uh, I'll pop the other one here in a few minutes while we're talking. And, and, which, and which one are you looking at? Are you looking at, I sent you two. One was uh, from Daytona, which was more about strategy. And then I think the other one was uh, sort of an elbows out. It was VIR recently yeah. um, at, the, at the Hoosier Super Tour where I um, started back in 45th and drove my way to 4th. Um, you know, elbows out, sort of wheel to wheel, door to door. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah. So the first one I clicked was the one that you labeled strategy. So yeah. Okay. Uh, cool. We'll uh, we'll cycle through that while we're chatting here. Well, well, well Daytona. That, Daytona is this wonderful track where drafting and strategy is more important than your ability through the infield. Right. Um, and so the mental game of racing is incredibly satisfying. Um, it's a chess game. And you can put yourself in the right place or the wrong place with these strategic moves. You can get it completely wrong. And I've got it wrong more times than I've got it right. But each time was a learning curve. And I go back and study those videos. And I go, don't do that again. Don't do that again. And um, so I, I think this the one that you might be watching. I can't see it. Um, you can, it's, it's about getting yourself into the right place. I, I've raced around some incredibly strategic drivers in the early days when I started racing, I was around the Pombo brothers. Yeah. They were, they were particularly gifted. They, they basically taught us drafting at Road Atlanta. I learned a lot from them. So Another was this early, Pepe? Uh, no, no, from the Suns, from, okay, from uh, the Matthew Suns. and Mark. Because Pepe Matthew Pombo Mark, yeah, was one of son. my driver's school t uh, instructors. He is, <laughs> is a character. Yes, he is. He went to turn, you know Road Atlanta well. Um, well so in my, in my uh, driver's school, um, he was really unhappy shocking that um we weren't getting to the apexes so he 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 walked out to turn seven yep which is yep. the right hander before you go into the back straight the back straight correct yep. and and sh and and the corner workers were just like shocked because he literally walked out to the apex of the corner <laughs> and dared us to hit him because he knew we would never do it you can see him doing that can't you <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So um, so I come around the corner, coming down six, and I'm like, "Who in the f is this guy?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Crap, that's 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 Pepe." Pepe Pombo. Oh my. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, and his sons, it's it's Matthew yeah. and and Mark and Mark and Mark. They, they and they're both still racing. Yeah. They're both still racing. They're pretty good um, race car but drivers. But anyway, they they were early influences in my racing career. They were studying data back then. It was TrackMate. Todd Lamb was also under our tent, and he was a particularly dedicated uh, racer and i learned for quite a lot from him and then later on um spec miata started to attract a lot of young kids uh we got young preston pardis into our class selena Rolan. um and so as i was aging the class was getting younger and younger but i was i would see these gifted athletes and i was learning from them uh preston is an incredibly strategic driver you know hits his marks does everything correctly but his strategic brain is pretty impressive to watch. Yeah. There are guys that are they're the old faithfuls, the Jim Dragos that have been around forever, that are the, you know, has been there on the marks every single time. Um, but nowadays, ever since Connor Zilich arrived 
in our class two years ago, double world champion, massive following, worldwide following, comes to Spec Miata, literally within a year, gets four or five pro drives, and every single karting kid said, all righty, this is the way to go pro, <laughs> we're coming to Spec Miata. And literally, the class changed from a bunch of old farts that looked like me to now uh, almost like something that looks like Danny's daycare. And, I, and I thre I'm threatening to change the label on the side of my car from Danny's Angels to Danny's Daycare. But anyway, so the class is really young. It's full of these, uh, you know, incredibly ambitious young kids hoping to make it in the pro world. Um, sometimes they're driving a little bit above their heads. Um, one of the things that people that know about me is that I spend a lot of time in data. I spend a huge amount of temp time in the simulator. I do a lot of preparation before I get to a track. Obviously, I'm an aging guy, so I'm competing against people with very fast reflexes, very fast synapses. So I'm, my plan is that if, if I can't, if I don't have the skills to beat them, I will outwork them. And so I do that in the prep. Um, but I make copious notes. I sit on the, on the simulator for hours. I watch hours and hours of YouTube videos, and I make notes on the tracks and setup and what people are doing. I also have notes on all the drivers. Who's gonna to go to the brakes early? Who's a progressive mm. breaker? Who's a threshold breaker? Who's gonna work with me? Who's not gonna work with me? Who's gonna race me really hard? Who might run me off wide? And I have all these notes about these drivers and I've been meticulous, I have 15 years of notes on all the tracks and all the drivers. And then the kids arrived. And then I had to start writing notes, not just about the driver, but about the dad. Mm because I wasn't racing the kid often. I was racing the dad's expectations of the kid. Yeah. And so I had to start paying attention to how the dad was responding to his kid getting beaten. Was he okay with it? Was he encouraging? Was he building him up? Was right. he tearing him down? And so now my notes are now very much about <laughs> the, the, the 16 and 14 or 15 year old kid's dad or his parents. And, I, and I've got to consume in the car, in the back of my mind, I'm turning, mentally turning through pages of notes about the, the kid that I'm going, I don't remember this guy. I can't remember his name. I can't remember his <laughs> notes. Anyway, uh, look, I'm making it a little bit facetious, but it's such an interesting thing because we're, we're locked in cars that are, almost identical yeah. so in the end you've just got to be on your marks you just got to nail down the marks you got to have a good car but you've got to have a good teammate and you've got to make sensible decisions and and that keeps me coming back week after week <laughs> so um you, you you told me before we started that uh you wanted all, all the things out there um and uh you you've been part of a little bit of controversy here and there um oh, sure with the uh with spec miata um Tell, tell me, tell me that story. Well, I'm sure there's many, but the uh, <laughs> the, the, the the one that really painted me uh, for the rest of my life, and I'll carry this cheetah brush on my back forever. And there are people that have never forgiven me. But um, the first year that we went to uh, to Indianapolis, I think it was 2017. Right. Um, we were oversubscribed. We had more drivers than there were places. We had an A and a B class in order to get into the main event. It was absolutely fantastic. And um, I finished second behind uh, Preston Pardis, and I think Celine Roland was in third place, and, um, and Chris Holderman was in fourth. And in, in post-race, in tech, there was an infraction on my car in the rear suspension, a slotted um, uh, uh, subframe. Once again, I, 
I don't know exactly what it is, but there was something that wasn't right. And I got tossed out. And of course, uh, the minute that you're a high profile person, easy to hate, and you do something like that, the haters come out and it was a free for all uh, from then on. And some people have never forgiven me and I totally understand it and, and I deserve it. I'm responsible for my car. It should be spot on. Um, and so, yes, I wear that badge. But what's really interesting is that some people have never been able to let go. In fact, way back when, I think 2015, there was this really interesting gentleman in, in uh, Central Florida um, who created a website, <laughs> When Will Danny Win Again? Oh, boy. <laughs> it was a countdown timer <laughs> because I'd had a spectacularly unsuccessful 2014 season. And so John Carter created this really interesting thing as a, as a way to embarrass me. And what was fascinating was nothing motivated me more. Yeah. And literally from 2015 to today, my racing has got better and faster. And I'm, getting, I'm still getting faster, even on the sim. On the same car, the same setup, I'm still running faster times now at the age of 65. I'm setting more track records each year than I've ever done, um, which is quite bizarre. It shouldn't be happening. But it just shows you that if you just keep on working at something, there's a little bit of stuff that you will find. Right. And, and in the back of my mind, I just wonder, you know, if those haters only spent just a fraction of as much time trying to get better rather than hating, they'd be up at the front there with me. So come on, guys. I know I'm not, not going to call you out by names, but you know who you are. So come <laughs> on, let's make this class even more interesting. My best races by far, Brian, are the races that I didn't win. Yeah. The races that gave me the most satisfaction were races where I drove my, the, my pants off or drove the tires off the car and I did the best I could, but I didn't even win. Yeah. yeah. The races where I drove away and won, I don't even remember them. They're meaningless. I love the competition. I literally can get out of a car in fifth place or 10th place with a smile on my face and going, that was epic. Can we do that again? Um, so winning is not that critical to me. That The thrill of the competition is what motivates me and brings me back. Um, and the fact that Chuck and I are having this wonderful time and spec me out as the odd couple and doing a fairly decent job and people are noticing. Um, yeah. It shouldn't be happening, but it's, it just shows you that a young kid and an old guy can somehow dance together well, well enough to be a threat. I mean, I think, I think Chuck is leading the Super Tour points and I'm second by two points. Um, that's totally bizarre. Yeah. yeah. So there's so much to unpack, and, and, and I got you for 28 more minutes, so here, here we go. Um, I, before I get to, you just mentioned something that's really intriguing to me, and I'm going to get to that in a second. Um, hey. you, all the young kids who are in, um, are you enjoying that challenge? I love everything about it, but it's a double-edged sword. Um, if you take a look from a purely from a business model, Spec Miata is probably one of the things that saved SCCA. No question. This, it is a fantastically deep class. Hundreds and hundreds of cars across the country race every year. At the runoffs, there will be 60 or 70 cars that will show up. I, I, 60 or 70 at, at some of these uh, super tours. So phenomenal class. And if you take a look at the average gestation, the, the, the longevity of the drivers, there are people like me in 15 or 16 years, but the average person is four to six years. The average kid that wants to go pro is 12 months, maybe two years. Right. 
He's using it as a stepping stone to go somewhere. So if he comes, if the young kid comes in, drives over his head, creates an incredible amount of carnage, the unfortunate possibility is that some of the guys that would, would be racing for four or five years and spending sure. money for four or, five, four or five years on parts with Mazda, um, on entry fees with SCCA, they might be chased away. And I have a bit of a concern about the business model. However, for me personally, there is nothing more that, that excites me more than trying to stand on a podium with a 15-year-old kid on the one side, the 16-year-old kid on the other side, and say, hey, guys, just remember on Monday when you go back to school, got to tell them that you got your ass handed to you by a grandpa. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love um, it. That, that keeps me young. It really does, and I love chasing that. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned uh, uh, Spec Miata saving the SCCA, and we can argue that but really can't argue that, you know, and, and I, not so much the big races like the super tour or the runoffs. Um, but there are regions who run the regular divisional races that we do and, and regionals, which isn't quite so much a thing anymore. Um, and without spec Miata and spec racer Ford, those two classes alone basically cover the costs of the weekend for the, for, for the, the regions. Um, and any of the other classes that come in are kind of how a region makes their money. Um, without those two classes uh, out there, which often have, you know, 20, 20 cars on, on a, on a non-major weekend, um, without those two classes, there's, there's a lot of regions that probably wouldn't break even on their race weekends. So Absolutely. Uh, and thank you for mentioning that, Brian. Yeah. You know, uh, look, I'm not throwing shade on anything. I would love to be running in GT1 if I could afford to. Sure. I'd love to do, I'd love to go and race pro and do something if I could afford to, all of this stuff. But um, these two classes, look, no racing is cheap. Um, I, I call, I say that Spec Miata races are, is sustainable racing because it races on a tripod of three legs. Racing in slow motion, crashing in slow motion, and spending in slow motion. And if you violate any one of those legs, right. that tripod becomes unsustainable and you exit out of racing earlier. But you can literally carry on racing, as in my case, 15, 16 years now. And there's a lot of people, Jim Drago has been doing this a lot longer than I have, and other people have been in Spec Miata longer. Todd Buris has been in there, I think, since the first days. And um, so there's people here maybe getting close to 17, 18, maybe even 20 years of I don't even know the first year that it started running, but there could be people in Spec Miata for 20 years. There's not a lot of people in any class other than maybe Formula V um, that have been around for 20 years. And yeah, look, some of the IT class and stuff on a regional level are inexpensive racing, but that I think that's the key to this. I think B-Spec is really interesting. Um, B-Spec racing is, is getting really interesting. I just wish it had a better sound and looked a little <laughs> bit more exciting, but the races are actually pretty impressive. Yeah. And I can see B-Spec growing and they're like every class, you need a, a core group of, of individuals that, that wear the class on their, on their sleeves, that bleed, that eat, sleep and breathe it. Those people build the class and there are those people in B-Spec. And I'm just watching this class grow there. And I'm sure that's another thing that's going to keep Spec Miata going. Sure. No question. As soon as you start getting into the more prepared classes, um, that's, you start spending a little bit more money. Um, Super Touring Light is growing really well. I think it'll be the third or fourth biggest class again at the uh, at the runoffs and in terms of participation during the, the Hoosier Super Tour. 
And what's nice now is that if you're a Honda guy, and there are quite a few really rapid guys yep. in super touring light in Hondas, um, you know who you are, guys. I'm looking forward to seeing you. And um, they're very clever because they never bring their cars during the year, so they never <laughs> get the data boxes. And then they bring this a massive overdog to the to the mayor to the event. Um, anyway, uh, Joe, you're doing a phenomenal job there. Jose Pena is bringing a brand new super touring light. There's a lot of guys that race a similar car to myself, but now there's a mix of different marks. So that's also interesting. Not everybody wants to race a Mazda right. or an S or an SRF. Yeah. Um, so we've got to cater to everybody. Um, sometimes, look, my heart goes out to Deanna Flanagan and to uh, Eric Prull and Mike Cobb and all these people trying to figure out, do you run 26 classes at a runoffs? You know, that, that makes this thing 13 days with test days. Yeah. That's a monster, 10 days with test days. That's a monster event. Yeah. If you could bring it to five or six important classes, would be much shorter, but that's not good for the club. Right. Um, so this is such a delicate balance, and it, I, have, I have no idea how to solve this all. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I've said for a long time that we have too many classes, um, and I don't think there's anyone who really would argue with me unless you're in one of those classes that exactly. doesn't have a lot exactly. of cars. Um, but there are some classes that I think we could combine together um, and and find a way to do balance of power and and cut them in a little bit um, and and you know but SCCA has always been a place where they want to be welcoming to everybody who wants to show up and write a check you know and and I get that too so it's it, you're right it is so so difficult um, so STL last year at the runoffs the runoffs for me are a, bl a blur last year because. Uh, there was so much stuff going on that had nothing to do with with uh, what that, that affected stuff on the track, but yeah. I mean we, we we raced in a in a gosh darn hurricane. <laughs> well, if you remember if you remember the Spec Miata race, um, yeah. we went out. It started to drizzle. I mean, I don't know how many people went off. Um, I went out relatively early, but I got to watch from the stands, and so many people went off in one and different places. Right. That we had restarts and everything, so it, it was yeah, it, it was quite difficult. And then in Super Touring Light, uh, we were very fortunate. We had a perfectly dry track, right? And uh, Joe Moser, unfortunately, he, uh, he was one of the favorites for sure. He'd always been fast. He is always fast. He's a hell of a driver. He's got a very very fast uh, Honda CRX. Um, something went wrong with his car, literally on the first or second lap, and he retired. And suddenly, I was in the lead with a. It was easy, and I was out there managing. And the next thing, I couldn't couldn't get I couldn't get to fifth gear. And I'd been in that situation once before. I tried to jam it in, and um, so I ended up staying in fourth gear for four or five laps. Um, and I was just losing time. The first lap, I lost about eight seconds, then figure out how to drive, drive it in fourth gear. And I was maybe losing four seconds a lap or something like that. But I knew that if I tried to shift it, there was a real chance that I would fragment the rest of the gears. Right. And so I stayed that. And then on the last lap, I said, uh, screw this. I'm <laughs> going to just try and shove it in. And I did. And I actually was able to, to hang. And then I just caught a lapper at just the wrong place. And anyway, it's just one of those things. Yep. Um, yeah. You know, Luck is such an important part. Um, I still love it. Doesn't matter where I finish. I still love racing. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we we've got a thing going on in our club right now, um, and it, it the, there was there's an effort to try to 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 deal with this. We it's called uh, green to checkers. Yep. Um, on a that, that seemed to have been doing well, um, and I do think there's been some improvement, um, 
depending on. Uh, I'm I'm trying not to tap dance here because some race it's, weekends it, it's it's event dependence. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> um. But I see some things out there, um, and and some of the driving and overdriving caution flags and all of this kind of stuff. You know, we all want to race green as much as possible, you know, and we, we hear people complain about particular tracks because they won't do hot poles. Um, we hear people, all this kind of stuff. Well, in you know, tracks aren't doing hot poles anymore because – our drivers didn't pay attention to yellow flags and scared the crap out of their workers. Yep. That's why they're not doing hot pulls, you know? And, um, um, we had a couple of situations at the sprints where, um, I, I just, cause you know, I, I, I'm one of the super tour announcers and I'm sitting here in my home studio trying to call play by play. And I'm shaking my head because, you know, there was some really dangerous stuff that happened there. Um, and part of it is because the club, the people running the show want so desperately to keep us green because that's what the drivers want. But, um, in order to do that, we've got to get people to pay attention to these flags, um, and all of that. What, what, what are your thoughts on how we, how we manage this? Um, if you take a look in the United States, people drive slowly in the fast lane on the freeway. Mm-hmm. There are no consequences. There's a rule. It's not enforced, and there are no consequences. If you drove like that on the Autobahn in Germany, um, your vehicle wouldn't be around. Did, did you just lose me? I did. That's interesting. I lost Hang your on a second. Um, all right, let me... Wow, that's interesting. I'm just going to reach and see if I can do something. Hang on one second, please. Take your time. We're good. Sorry about that. While Danny's working on that, just want to remind everybody that uh, um, lots of things are going on right now with uh, with uh, the SCCA runoffs. Uh, workers registration has re has been open, so if you're interested in going to work the runoffs this year at VIR, uh, you can check that out. Um, solo uh, nationals registration is still open, although there's a wait list now. So um, yeah, the 1,300 spots are already filled. Uh, last time I looked, there were about 120 people on the wait list. And uh, I understand from the folks who do this uh, that uh, that usually about 10% of the people that signed up for the run, uh, for the solo nationals don't go. So many of the folks on that wait list are going to get a chance to be on there. So Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Um, uh, so we've got that, and I just see now that, uh, that Danny's back with us. So... Uh, <laughs> That. Isn't that isn't that so perfect? <laughs> the photographer's camera shuts down in the middle of a of a podcast. God, uh, what a what a loser! What an amateur! <laughs> yeah, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. So we were talking about the consequences of okay. of what so, we do. So for me in life, in order to change behavior, you need to have consequences 
the consequences have to be swift, severe, and fair. Only under those circumstances do you change behavior. Right. It's that simple. So but- you've got to figure you've got to figure out you've got to you've got to enforce them evenly and fairly. You've got to enforce them immediately, and they've got to be severe so much so that you would never do it again. Yeah. And when you do that, you change behavior. You put people in jail. You take away their cars. You do stuff, and guess what? People's behavior changes. But if you keep on just accepting it and just give it, uh, let's call it, you know, a nice talking to, nothing changes. But this is important. But but Danny, we're a club. We're just out here to have fun. I'm, I'm <laughs> well, playing, it's going to be I, fun I'm, until somebody gets hurt. I'm being um, sarcasm, by the way, for anybody who's wondering. Trust me, I know. Um, and look, and look. So let, let's back this up and let's take a look at the motivation of what's going on. I, I'm going to sp- talk specifically for Spec Miata. For all of us that are racing, we're racing in cars that are very equal. We all know that, you know, we're trying our damnedest to do that. And then we've also got some a whole bunch of young kids that are coming there with ambitions of going pro. So everybody's driving at or near their limit and sometimes a little bit over their limit. We get that. Not everybody, and sometimes you're running three or four wide into a turn, um, and sometimes you don't see the yellow flag. There, there are definitely those situations. Um, I see that they're introducing um, the, uh, the the automated uh, yellow camera in the, uh, the, the let's call it the uh, um, what do you call it the electronics um, electronics in yep. the car. I think that's a phenomenal idea. But I think there should be a simple thing that if you haven't reacted to that, come off the throttle. There should be some data trace, and if you haven't slowed down with fifty percent or whatever within two seconds of that. Um, by the way, that's the end, and you're out of here for a year. And nice to have you. So, so f- I've got some experience with Flagtronics. Um, I host the Inside Champ Car podcast, um, and uh, I've had a chance to w- work with them on some of their races. And so, I've seen Flagtronics up close and personal. Um, yeah. I, I'm, does it change any behavior? Oh, absolutely does. Good. Okay, so there's one thing that a lot of people haven't talked about yet. When all of the stuff I've seen, you know, since it was announced yesterday. Um, Flagtronics has, uh, not only does it send information to the car, it sends information from the car back to, back, back to race control. So this is the important part. when, when they go full course yellow, um, and, and at any time, but when they go full course yellow, um, Flagtronics can be set at a, um, at, at a speed, um, that it will alert race control if any cars are going faster than whatever speed it's set to, to monitor. Um, they use this a lot in, in champ car for their code 35, um, yep. which will be an argument in the SCCA for quite some time, whether that's something we should talk about. Um, I've seen that work really well too. And there's some, some good stuff, but let's not talk about that. But what we, what will be able to happen. And I've just lost your camera again. That is bizarre. I yeah. don't know. It might be overheating or something, but okay. um, I'm just going to switch to one camera. So just give me one. I'm just going to switch cameras. So I'll, I'll take care of this. I'll in keep a talking about Flagtronics for a second while you're doing that. Um, so so the the Flagtronics has the ability to send data back to race control, and it will show race control which drivers are going faster um, than whatever is set there. So that will be an opportunity for race control to look at who the the people are who are not paying attention. Uh, to whatever the situation might be, who, who are overdriving um, the situation. Uh, and, and, and one of the things um, that I hope comes out of um, what, um, what we're doing with the Super Tour on our video side of things is um, 
for, for years, race control has solely relied on what information they receive from the, the flaggers, uh, the corner marshals. And um, they've never had the benefit of video. And I know that they still don't use the video to um, judge situations. Um, that may or may not come down the road. Who knows? Um, but what they do have the benefit now of is to be able to go back after a race is over and watch what we have seen. And um, I think that it, will, it might surprise folks um, in, in uh, our race controls to see what's happening around the track, especially when we go full course yellow, um, because it's, it's strikingly obvious in some situations that um, full course yellows are not being, um, especially through the zone of danger of a full course yellow, the cause of the full course yellow, uh, are not always being tended to. Um, and, and I think maybe, Danny, that maybe it wasn't quite as obvious to the officials prior to this, um, the big problems that were out there. And I hope that the our race officials have 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 taken the opportunity, or maybe during the off season, will take the opportunity to go back and look at some of the Super Tour uh, live streams because they'll see what's going on. Actually, I think it doesn't require something like Bladtronics to illustrate it. I think there's a lack of desire to be the policeman. Right. Um, it's really not a lovely position to be in. It's not. Uh, you're immediately you're immediately unpopular. You hand out stuff that people hate. And, you know, in this thing that we're a club and we're a family and all of that sort of stuff, it's a difficult thing. But I raced the Baja 1000 two years ago. Um, they have this stellar unit that sits on the handlebars of the bikes. And when we go through any urban areas where there is a speed limit, it is pinging back up to the satellites, our speed. And every second that we spend over 50 miles an hour, we get penalized by 10 seconds. Wow. Nobody speeds. And yeah. you do it once or twice. And the consequences are so severe. There are people that have been missed, that raced for a th in a thousand miles, 40, 50 hours, yeah. and lost the podium because of penalties based on overspeeding through, um, you know, essentially through a, a full course yellow or racing through a, 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 you know, a zone where they shouldn't have been going fast. So this ability to have this information go back to the cloud about what the person's doing and make it fully automated. So there's nobody making a judgment call. Just simple. Yeah. Here it is. Uh, you went fast. You're wrong. Uh, you hand back your silver medal, give it to somebody else. Right. I think that, that the, conse the consequences, you can't, the consequences can't be done a week later, right. which is when you do a committee and hearings and everything, the consequences have got to be handed down on the same day. It's, it's like Formula One right now with track limits. Do we like it? No, we don't. Right. Uh, it's, it, it's a bit distasteful, but guess what? Uh, everybody's learning very quickly because, you know, five seconds, you know, one or two occurrences over track limits it then a black furled flag and the next thing at a five second penalty. And the next thing you've just lost that spot that you fought, uh, you know, two hours to, to gain. So right. the, the, the consequences must be rapid. They must be fair and evenly applied. Um, and they must be done as quickly as possible. Yeah. Right. You know, I, I know a lot of the people who run 
our race control. A lot of our stewards, they're friends of mine. They're good people. Um, they're all volunteers. Absolutely. And, and that in, in and of itself may be part of the problem. Um, most other series, even at the amateur level, um, the people running the shows are paid staff members um, who are, are not volunteers. And, you know, it's, it's easier when you're paid to put on the show to adjudicate. You know, it's, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a tough position to be in. Um, Terrible. And I would hate to be in that. I would, I would. It really, would, yeah. To so, take away somebody's trophy uh, for, you know, for some infringement and it was a judgment call. Right. That would be a very hard thing to do. It's yeah. tough. It's tough. Um, but the, the end of the day, Danny, we, we do a dangerous sport. We, 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 I've been, I've driven home from an SECA race where we've, where the, the hundred and the 300 people who came to the race on Sunday, 299 went home. That's a horrible feeling. We accept that. We, 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 we talk about, you know, we, we, that's part of our game. That's part of our sport. Um, but it's a we we do something dangerous here, and if we're not going to, um, if we're not going to take this really seriously, um, everyone wants three hundred people to show up on Sunday and three hundred people to go home on Sunday. Um, Absolutely. And and you know it's tough, but we we have to. I think we have to work to get this under control. And I know they're trying. Gosh, I know they're trying. The, the yes, green they the checker are. Um, and I, initiative. And I do... As I mentioned to you before we started, I said, uh, I'm sure Deanna and right. Eric and Mike are very frustrated with me because when they send these, these who's um, your super tour uh, reviews, how did you, you know, <laughs> the surveys after the event, you know, I write an essay about every single thing and what could be done better and where things could be done. Um, I, I have a belief that if you participate in something, that you should leave that place in a better condition than you found it. Mm. And so... If I if I'm not going to be a, a steward or work for the thing, there's something else I can do. I can help with suggestions. I can help with coaching. I can do something, but I need to contribute back. I can't just take. Right. Um, the point that you make uh, about SCCA, the volunteers. Well, first of all, to all your SCCA volunteers, thank you so much. You're Absolutely. our friends. Um, you have no idea how much we appreciate this, and this is not just a blowing smoke. Uh, trust me, every one of us races. Uh, loves what you do for us. Yes, there are those that are employed by SECA, and we appreciate that too. Um, no, no more, no less difficult. But this officiating, where you're the policeman, is it's such an unpopular job, and we've all met as friends, and it's such a difficult thing to do. I think that you've got to make it so automated that it's like a red light, uh, you know, traffic light camera. Yep. It's a picture. Hey, by the way, there you see, you're through. Uh, sorry, you, you know, you lose your license. Um, when you do it something like that, and it's not a judgment call, then uh, it becomes very easy to start applying it, and then people start adjusting their behavior. But right. until that stuff happens, the behavior is going to continue. And I'll be straight up with you. I think there's a lot of people in our class, sometimes myself included, that are driving just a little bit above our heads uh, in the heat of the moment, and when we're compartmentalizing the danger and we have this absolute belief that it could never happen to us and if it did happen to us it would never we wouldn't be the cause of something 
right. guess what? We're seeing it happen again and again. Right. And I, I don't want to go way down this road, yeah, but, no, no, sure. but a lot so, of it has to do with, I think this, a lot of this started when um, uh, some of our professional counterparts started driving in cars in, in, in ways that I, I shook my head at as well. Um, and this idea that, you know, um, you know, moving people out of the way to get past them and all this kind of stuff and people, you know, emulate what they see the pros. Sure. Doing. So, so um, absolutely. They're um, setting an example. There are mentors right. and we see that behavior. And so we emulate it here. Right. Yep. So uh, what, what is interesting and I, and I would, uh, uh, spec Miata is an interesting class because we are very often a stepping stone to a lot of people kids and adults that step into the pro ranks and they might go there for a few years and either money runs out or results didn't um, happen the way they thought and they come back. Sometimes it's just for a race or two. Sometimes it's to come back and continue racing club racing. But I noticed that the way they come back when they, re I remember who they were when they were in the club and I know when they, who they are when they come back with this pro experience and they drive differently. It's, I think the pro ranks almost not force you, but encourage you to drive with very little. Uh, and I, I know I'm going to be crushed in the social media for what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> and trust me, I got a thick skin. So yeah, go for it guys. I don't give a damn. But anyway, I, I think the, the the stakes are so high that people drive with um, very sort of self-centered mm -hmm. approach. What's, what's in it for me. Whereas I think that in club, we all understand that I'm still going to have a beer with you this evening afterwards. And so I want to drive in such a way that you'll still respect me tomorrow. I'll still respect you. We can still have a beer. And yeah, I'm, you might have sort of rubbed doors with me or you might have knocked me off, but I know it was never intentional. And I think that's the wonderful thing that I love about club racing. And if we can keep it in that environment, the, the class will, the, the, the club will continue to grow. But when it becomes everybody for themselves, everything's you know the position is everything right the sport the, the 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 enjoyment or the experience is not the thing the result is the thing um i think that that's when we there's a risk that we might be going in the wrong direction yeah i call it courtesy you know uh, if you drive with a little bit of courtesy that doesn't mean you don't drive hard that doesn't mean you don't try to beat the guy as, or the gal as as much as, as as you possibly can um but just you know if you were to give you know one half of one percent of courtesy um that that goes a long long way um thank you and treat people the way you'd like to be treated exactly, yourself yeah. exactly so um and race car drivers have a long memory they, they forget <laughs> nothing um i can tell you i i can tell you the guy that hit me in 1989 at a driver's school at mid ohio while i was parked for 35 seconds on the apex at the end of the back straight i know the guy's name i know the color of the car and i know the car number we have take birdsey where are you exactly. uh, I, I, I want you to give me back my two june sprints titles <laughs> so you know so we remember so um we never forget and Wojtek's a good friend of mine and so i'm calling him out but he's, he's a good yeah. buddy and i know that he wasn't but we never forget <laughs> uh before we get out danny and and i we could probably talk for another hour and i i suspect we're going to have another podcast down the road because i've had so much fun tonight um, Thank you. Thank I want to give you first the award for the best background set of all of my guests so far. <laughs> um, I love the helmets and the driver's suit, and and I, I'm 
I'm just going to hope that that's always your office and not just you put up for us tonight. Um, well, this, this, the suit is normally not there, and okay. I spread the helmets around in a slightly different uh, yes. stuff because I was using a different camera, which then proceeded right. to overheat because uh, I shut all the doors because I didn't want the dogs running in and behaving badly, and yes. I think the temperature caused that camera to overheat, so I apologize for no, that. No, don't worry about it. But, uh, yeah, so so big props on the, on the background Thank of you. the cameras. Um, but you mentioned one thing earlier, and I want to circle back to it. Um, you mentioned sim time. Y- you and I... We're, we're old guys. Um, our generation somewhat poo-poos the sim work. Um, well, they, they do it at their own at their own cost. Yeah. Um, the the sim and I I spend all of my time in iRacing and exclusively in iRacing. iRacing as a tool for me is invaluable. I more than likely spend. 20 to 30 hours in the sim every single before every event. So every morning before I go to work, I go get up at about 4.35, go and exercise, and no matter what, I do an hour of exercise. I'm obviously an older guy. I've got to stay in shape, so I do cardio, I do weights, and I swim or do something else. And then straight from that on the sim, I do an hour of sim every morning no matter what. When I come home in the evening, uh, five, six, seven o'clock, I always say to my wife, I need 30 minutes or 40 minutes, and I go and do the sim, no matter what. And so what the sim teaches you is muscle memory. Right. And muscle memory is such a critical component of this because in the end, racing is nothing but decision-making, where to turn in, how quickly to turn in, how hard to go to the brakes, how long to stay on the brakes, when to come off the brakes, how quickly to come off the brakes, when to go to throttle, how hard to go to throttle, uh, how early the AP, all of these things are decisions. And if you can just keep on repeating them again and again and again, you are going to hit your apexes better than a guy that's showing up to the track and he's trying to work his way into it. Yeah. Yes, for a guy like me, when I first got into iRacing, had a simple Logitech setup, I couldn't feel a damn thing. I couldn't get a lap without crashing 10 times. And I felt like such a beginner, but I just worked it and worked at it. And what was really interesting was that I started to realize I was developing two other other senses that I didn't have. I was developing a much keener sense of feel in my fingers that I was starting to feel the car getting away from me, either in the brakes or the slipping or the turning. And so my fingers were becoming more sensitive but I also found that my ears were tuning in to what was happening with the engine under load, and I could feel it loading up just before it would give away. And I realized that these things were helpful, even in the real world where I did have the yaw and the slip and the slide in, the, in my seat of pants, but these other things were helpful as well. So all of these things, in my opinion, stack. Um, there was a wonderful book written about called The Aggregation of Marginal Gains. This was written by the coach of the Sky uh, Tour de France uh, team. Uh, this is about 10 years ago. And by the way, Tour de France is on right now, and we've got a bunch of American cyclists that are doing really well. Yeah, it's beautiful Seth to watch. Yeah, and, and um, Yeah, he's, uh, he's king of the mountains. Yeah. It's really, really fascinating to yeah, watch Nielsen every night. Wallace. I tune in no matter what. Oh, yeah. yeah, me too. But anyway, but the aggregation of marginal gains, simple thing. The Sky team. Each, each guy would take his own mattress in the tour bus. He would have his own pillow. He'd have his own diet. Not that any of these one things would make him a better cyclist, but if he had 10 minutes of better sleep, he ate his meal that worked for him 
all of these things would stack. And so all of these are important. And the sim is just another piece of this puzzle. And if you don't do it, you're not stacking that marginal gain. Right. And so this is, whether it's fitness, early morning, waking up and exercising, data study, video study. Um, I spend as much time in video study as I do in the sim. Mm. And normally what I'm doing is I'm watching my rear view camera on my car, which I run every race. And I'm watching the people driving behind me and I'm making notes about how they drive. Mm. Where they turn and what they do, I'm understanding their strengths, their weaknesses, what I have to do around that. Now, from some people, and I'm going to be absolutely honest, there are plenty of people that want to pull out their car, roll it off the track, get in a, and go and have fun. More power to them. Um, I, wish, I wish I was built like you. That's not how I'm wired. I, I'm trying my best to be better than I, can, than I am today. Every day I should be raising my standard of self-respect. I can't help myself. That's just the way I'm wired. So for me, it's like, did I, did I do enough work to get there? So I'm just stacking these, aggregating these marginal gains. Yeah. So I, I've spent some time talking with uh, Dion von Molke, who runs now a coaching service. Yep. And um, um, and he's he's a pretty quick hand. Yeah. He is. He is. And he was talking about, and, and it didn't really click in my head until he said this. Um, almost every single sport out there, you can go and practice. If you're a runner, you can walk out your front door and run around the block. If you're a golfer, you can go down to your local golf course, plunk down 25 bucks, and go play golf. Uh, if, you're, if you play baseball, basketball, football, these are sports that you can pretty have a, a pretty easy access to practice. We don't have that. <laughs> practice, and if we did, it would be too expensive. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. For, for, for almost all of us, practice is extraordinarily expensive. Um, and in the end, you can not only the, the cost of going to practice, if you ball up your car, <laughs> that is another cost that we, most of us can't afford to do and don't want to risk. Um, so that's why the sim work um, can be really, really beneficial. And your video work, um, that's amazing. I hadn't even thought about doing that. And I know there's data acquisition. Some guys dig deep into that. Guys and gals dig deep into that. So... Um, uh, but all of the stuff, anything that we can do between Monday and Thursday. Before you get to the track. Before you get to the racetrack. And, and, and let's put aside wrenching on the car and making sure that it rolls off the trailer as good as possible. But anything you can do before you get to the racetrack, you know, even in pro series, Dion was saying, you know, they might get 25 minutes of practice. And a lot of times, if you're at endurance racing, you're splitting that up amongst two or three drivers before you have to go out and only one guy gets to qualify. And then you're right in a race. So you got to have it together. And that's why I think if people aren't trying to work on the sim stuff, they're giving up something to someone else in your class that is. Absolutely. It's, it's a tool. And you're not utilizing a tool that's, you know, very inexpensive to use and very, in my opinion, very valuable. Yes, there's a little bit of a learning curve to it. But once you get into it, uh, once again, there's data acquisition in it. Yep. By the way, I have never run a race, not a single race in iRacing. I've been doing this for 14 years. You've never. I've so, never run a race. So all of your time. So is all, all of your testing. time straight up? One Straight car testing. testing, or do you do do testing with virtual cars around you? No, one car testing against the wow. clock. I start on one turn. I focus on one turn. 
before they introduced this new segment component that they have, I would turn around and go back on the track because when you're testing, you can turn around and go backwards. And I'd go through the turn again, a different turn in point, different braking point. I'd make my notes. I'd have a certain milestone uh, somewhere down the track after the turn and I'd see what speed I was at. I'd make my notes. I'd turn the car around and I'd go and try something different. Right. Um, I, I, uh, there was a point early on where I played with a lot with setup. And then I said, okay, then I can, I'm not sure if I'm chasing my tail. And I said, let me put it to default and I let me work on myself. Yeah. And so I started putting the car all the way back to default and I've been running default setup now for about eight years and I just work on myself. But as I mentioned earlier, I've been doing this now for 14 years in iRacing. The tracks haven't changed. That the, the cars that I use were still the same cars. They haven't changed. And I am running faster lap times now 14 years later on those identical tracks with the default setup. Mm. That tells you that just this, this application of time and effort and data analysis and being analytical and trying to figure something out and not just accepting what's going on, it, you can reveal a, a, a small thing here, you know, a little, a tenth there, a hundredth there. If you take if you think about Spec Miata, the average Spec Miata race is one by tenths, sometimes hundreds, sometimes right. thousands. So if you figure out at most tracks, we've got six or eight turns, and I'm just, some have got 14, but for the most part, there's six or seven turns in it. And if you could make up a hundredth in each turn, yeah, six turns, 15 laps, one and a half seconds. Yeah. So should you be working trying to find out that find where you can make that hundredth in that turn? Of course you should. You should be working to find a thousandth in that turn because that all stacks up and that's this, what separates the winners. Right. Chuck and I together at, at, at June's Prince when we had this interesting interview, the, the separation I think was 27 thousandths. Yep. Yep. You know, that just shows you how close it is. The other thing that I get out of sim racing is it teaches me how to learn. So it, it's, I've had to, because I, I, I was like you, I sucked when I first sat down. It was, I was embarrassed. I'm like, I'm a car oh. guy. I, and thank God I, I didn't do it. I, I race with a bunch of buddies. It's, it's like six of us every th Thursday right. we get together and we were merciless against each other. Um, but I did it a couple of times. I was scared to get on with these guys, but, but, but it, it's taught me how to learn something new and how to make a gain here or there, which then you can transfer to a weekend. Because if you can learn something on Friday, Saturday, Sunday faster than you would normally learn it, you're going to get more out of your weekend. Um, there's just so many benefits to it. Um, and it also gives you a chance to be sharper in the off-season. I mean, there's so many things. Well, fortunately, I'm in Florida, and we generally don't have an off-season. We sure. race 10, 11 months a year. I think that there's the, the, you're absolutely right on all of those points, but I think there's something that's more important. We show up on a test day. We typically, for let's say, for a who's your super two, who's your super two weekend. You know, Thursday's a test day, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And if you're lucky, you have two or three or maybe even four sessions, test sessions on Thursday. If you roll your vehicle off and you're getting back to familiarize yourself with the track, those three or four sessions are you getting back up to speed. Right. The setup things that you're working on are really not that meaningful because you haven't quite got to that 
point. But if you roll that car off the trailer on Thursday and your first lap, flying lap, is almost your fastest lap of the weekend, all your setup changes are very important changes and they are pertinent to you at that speed. And so I think you hone in on what you need to do in your car much faster by arriving fully prepared, uh, fully you know, mentally geared up and, and hitting your marks and being up to speed. I just think you're, the, 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 the setup work that you do is, is more important than if you were just working your way up to speed. I, I, I couldn't say it better. So, uh, Danny, we're, we're past the time. I typically don't like to go past an hour because I know when I listen to a show, a podcast, and it goes past an hour, I, I kind of start to tune out. But this has been so good, um, and I can't thank you enough for for giving us the time. I look forward to coming up and shaking your hand at the runoffs and uh, and enjoying a beverage with you. Um, thanks a bunch, and uh, good luck with uh, with whatever you got coming up next. Ryan, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, we have Day- Daytona coming up in a few w- weeks. That's a regional event. And unfortunately, I won't be able to do Barber, which is another regional, but I'm attending a friend's wedding. And then so I, I've got basically Daytona, and then I go straight to the runoffs. Very much looking forward. But all I want to say is thank you for everything that you do. Um, I love hearing your voice and you're on the announcing booth. Um, thanks for everything that you're doing for our club. Thanks for Thank you for keeping these dialogues going and for interviewing this tremendous spectrum of people that you are chatting to. Um, don't, be, don't be shy to ask the tough questions. Yeah. Um, I think that we learn more when we, un- you know, the problem with social media these days is that we portray this glossy image right. that we'd like to portray of ourselves. And none of it's real. Let's, let's face it, none of us live a life that we show on social media. We need, you, you mentioned how you felt when you were first started in iRacing. You felt embarrassed. I wish we, we should reveal more of ourselves, right. of who we are when we're screwing up. And I think there's a lot more learning that happens in unpacking that. So in your podcast, and if you want to get me on next time and you want to just dig around the dirty edges, we'll, we can have some fun. But don't, don't, don't avoid that. I think there's yeah. way more to be learned in the weeds than there is on the glossy surface. Yeah, those of us, those who watch the podcast, know that I'm not afraid to talk about my my, my foibles. <laughs> I find that that's uh, always a good stepping off point. But um, uh, yeah, and and like like we talked before we even started, you know, I I love talking about the difficult questions, the difficult topics, um, as long as we all can keep it respectful with the idea of coming to a, a, the end of the discussion with possibly a better place um, than we started. That's what I'm looking for. So. Uh, that that's going to do it for another episode of Inside the SCCA. If you like what you're hearing or seeing, subscribe to the Racing Wire Podcast Network or the Racing Network on YouTube so you won't miss any episodes. It would also be great if you leave a comment, uh, especially if it's a good one. If it's a bad one, put it on someone else's channel. Uh, follow us on social media to find out who our next guest is and leave a question. On Twitter, it's at RacingWireNet. New Inside SCCA's air every uh, Wednesday live and then Fridays for the podcast. I'm Brian Bolanski. Have yourself a fantastic weekend. Stay safe and go play with cards.
Hi, I'm Kelton Jago, and this is Inside the SCCA. Inside the SCCA is a presentation of the Racing Wire Podcast Network and Rural 15 Productions. This podcast is not affiliated with, endorsed, or sponsored by the Sports Car Club of America. The views expressed within are those of the host and our guests, and not that of the SCCA.